Hello, you are listening to Delta Dispatches. We're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. I'm Jacques Hebert with Environmental Defense Fund and Restore the Mississippi River Delta. And I'm Simone Malaz with Restore the Mississippi River Delta. Hello, Simone. How are you? (laughs) Happy July. (laughs) It's so great to have you back. I know. Uh, you know, you've been busy. You've been on off the coast of Rhode Island looking at uh, wind turbines. Mm-hmm. You've been out and about, you know, on Louisiana's coast uh, helping projects move forward. So it's great to have you back and reconnect. Um, how are things going? Um, everything's good. I'm sorry I missed Arthur Johnson. And then I'm like, then a little like, Arthur's good. Like, I hope he doesn't take my spot. <laughs> um, so um, so I did miss you on the last episode, but I'm excited for today's episode. I know we have a couple of good things um, coming up to discuss too, but otherwise summer is hot and rainy. How's yours going? Yeah, uh, not as hot, um, not (laughs) as rainy, but it's going well. You know, I've been enjoying a lot of time outside, of course. Got to take advantage of every second of summer up here while we can. But yeah, we had a wonderful conversation with Arthur. Um, It's always great to catch up with him. I, I, you know, he's always welcome on the show. And uh, yeah, whether he replaces one or both of us, you know, (laughs) who's to say? But, But we love talking to Arthur. And I'm so excited about the guests that we have on today. Um, You know, he's been doing work that really closely connects with some of the areas that we pay attention to. And of course, just um, his work at the Water Institute of the Gulf is um, certainly very central to Louisiana's coast and efforts to learn more about what is happening along our dynamic and ever-changing coast. So why don't we dig into it? I'm so excited to welcome to the show for the first time, Christopher Esposito, who's a water resources research scientist with the Water Institute of the Gulf. Welcome to Delta Dispatches, Chris. How are you? Hi, Jacques. I am very well. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Awesome. Well, tell us a little bit about your background. But first, you know, for folks who may not be familiar with the Water Institute of the Gulf, what is that organization? And um, tell us a little bit about its mission. Yeah, so the the Water Institute um, plays a lot of roles and sort of people within it also play a lot of different roles. But at our or we're a, a nonprofit, uh, independent scientific research organization. Um, we have a, a mission that uh, I think is defined as we, we help coastal and deltaic societies uh, thoughtfully plan for an uncertain future. So that's a pretty broad mandate. But what we do is we, um, we, we lead research projects into sort of issues of coastal importance, um, we also perform advisory service uh, to the state and other entities um, in the way that a, a sort of contractor consultant would be. And we also play a role in bridging um, the gaps in a way between stakeholders and researchers and sort of various elements in that community. So I think that's actually where our role really, really takes a, an interesting turn is we, since we wear so many hats, we can serve as a really effective bridge organization to bring a lot of people to the table and have uh, a, a major role in, in um, uh, I guess, deepening some of the conversations about land use and restoration and sort of long-term planning around uh, coasts and coastal management. 
So Chris, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, why, uh, why did little Chris want to be a scientist and, 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 and specifically why work on um, the Mississippi River Delta? Yeah, sure. So I, I, I have a sort of circuitous path that led me to becoming a scientist. Um, I, I actually arrived in Louisiana in uh, 2007. I think it was it was 2007, and I, I arrived here from New Jersey, where I had I had a you know been doing a number of things, but uh, most consistently I had been a high school math teacher. And uh, 2007 was sort of relatively soon after Katrina, and there was a lot of opportunity for uh, uh, teachers to come down and and sort of participate in in that that sort of rebuilding the education system process, such as it were, um, and. I, uh, you know, I honestly at the time I needed a bit of change of scenery, and I, so I, I, I came down uh, on that on that impulse, and I taught for a year in the school uh, in a school in New Orleans as a high school math teacher, and then I, I sort of decided, and I've been feeling like this uh, for a long time teaching in New Jersey as well, that I wanted a couple more uh, more tools to connect with my students than were available to me inside the classroom, so I found a job. Uh, working in Raceland, Louisiana, at a school for uh, for for uh, at-risk uh, teenagers, and my job was a field trip instructor. So I was basically responsible for getting a lot of those kids up and out of the classroom and moving around in the environment and sort of doing things that were a little bit non-traditional, and so that they might be able to develop some new habits around. And it it was a blast, and we had a you know we. We could go anywhere in the state. We had a boat, we had a bus, and, and a mandate to do really interesting things. So one of the things that I I started doing with them, and which worked really well, was we would go out and do restoration plantings, or visit like the Galliano Plant Materials Center, or you know just go on canoe trips with uh, with other coastal scientists and educators and things like that. And through that process, I became more and more interested in sort of coastal issues in Louisiana and sort of coastal restoration generally, and um, decided that, you know, I, I actually had a degree in oceanography and in math as well. So I felt like I had a pretty solid foundation to return to graduate school. And that's, that's what I did. And so uh, that was, uh, that was sort of the, the long and tortured path that brought me to, uh, to becoming a, a coastal scientist. Chris, they call Raceland God's country. You know that, right? So they themselves call it that. So um, that's interesting. It very, I love to ask people about their past and how they, they got there. So, um, you know, hurricanes, climate change, uh, human activity have all contribute to Louisiana losing land, right? And so in your time that you've been here, that you got to know the city and, and all around us, and, and the fact that you've actually studied the Delta what are some of the biggest changes that you've noticed? Yeah, so this is a, this is a funny question um, and has to do with just a quirk of the types of places that I work in. Um, so I work mostly in areas that are uh, in the in the delta that are fed by abundant fresh water, um, whether they're crevasses or um, intentional diversions of some sort or uh, you know, places that receive a lot of water and a lot of sediment from the river. So oddly enough, the changes that I see are in many ways um, not associated with land losses. They're associated with changing vegetation communities and, uh, you know, changing 
uh, uh, landscapes and sort of new islands popping up here and there. So obviously that's, you know, that's, that's a very specific situation. Uh, you know, if you were to look at the entirety of coastal Louisiana as a whole, you'd see a lot more uh, loss than I see in my specific study sites. But it's, it's, it's been uh, really interesting to watch some of those landscapes change and, and, and very, very quickly. Uh, in those tiny little places that I that I do work, so that's probably a different answer than you usually get for that kind of question, just because of the the types of places that I work in. So, Chris, let's talk about one of those places in particular where you do a lot of work, and certainly where um, our organizations and many other organizations do work uh, to restore and kind of. Um, protect and learn from the changing coastal wetlands. So let's talk about the Bay Denise Living Lab Initiative. Could you walk us through this initiative and, and kind of how it got started? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'd be happy to. Um, I, I'll, I'll sort of take you back to how it, it became started. And, and it actually grew out of a, a, a project that was funded through uh, the National Academy's Gulf Research Program. And the, the, the mandate of that project was twofold. One, it was a, it was a research project that was intended to look at the ways in which vegetation controls the flow of water through deltaic landscapes and, um, and also the flow of sediment and, and how vegetation actually influences the sort of spatial patterns of sedimentation and the sediment retention in, uh, in deltaic landscapes. And, Part of that project, as I said, was a, a, a research effort, and part of it was a practitioner engagement effort. So we were getting together in meetings with people who were actually putting uh, vegetation restoration projects or in some ways manipulating vegetation, water, and sediment on, on the ground. And we were trying to think through, you know, that was intended so that the the, the, the workshops and these panels would be a way for the research outcomes to, to have a home that might land on someone's desk that would be able to use it. And one of the things that came out of that, or one of the really most interesting uh, uh, outcomes, was we, we actually planned a restoration project under a, a QIPRA program um, called LA39, which is a, a vegetation uh, planting initiative where, whereby you know, anybody in the state, I think, can go and apply for a place of interest to be planted with vegetation where they think that might be useful. And what we were able to do in this group was actually get together as a set of researchers and stakeholders and practitioners and think through how best to do a planting in an environment of our choosing. And it just so happened that that environment was going to be in Bay Denise for a number of reasons, uh, including accessibility and just mandates, and it seemed like a really good place to do something. And we actually went through the process of saying, all right, you know what, I think if we were to organize a line of vegetation in this direction, uh, we might be able to get more sediment delivered to this place. And if we planted a, you know, a denser patch here, we might learn something about how um, how vegetation affects flow and sediment. And so we started to use this as really a, a, a type of a, almost an experiment in how can we plan a restoration project that we're really going to learn something from, and that's going to allow us to improve on that model next time. And we're going to be able to, to sort of carefully uh, uh, monitor and, and, and see what the result of our 
project was and then really let that feed into the next one really, really well. So that was a really interesting um, workflow for us. I, I really liked the, you know, the iterative process. And, and after um, doing a couple of those uh, workshops and sort of, you know, running with that team and some plantings in Bay Denise, we were able to get some additional funding um, more recently from uh, the Lamar Family Foundation, which really kicked off what is now becoming the Bay Denise Living Lab. And the, 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 the funding for that project is essentially to create a really rich framework to allow the type of interaction that I just described to happen on a, on a regular basis. So what we're trying to do in Bay Denise is put together a lot of um, sort of activities that are really going to draw both restoration effort and also research effort to that location. So we've got an effort to put out monitoring data, sort of persistent institute data collection and monitoring. Um, also logistical support for people who would want to work in that area. And that might include maps and just, you know, data, collected data, connections to the community other things like that. Um, and also this rolling set of workshops like the one I described so that people who are doing work there, whether it's restoration work or whether it's research work, will really have an opportunity to communicate with one another. So the idea is to, to build a really rich set of activities here um, and use that as a way of, of sort of nucleating a really strong practice of coastal restoration research um, centered on this on this area and experiments that we can do at the landscape scale using existing restoration resources. So Chris, um, collaboration seems to be a key focus of this initiative. What what are some of the groups that you're you're working with or who who would you love to work with? Yeah, so uh, there there are <laughs> there are a number of them. Um, you know, like I said I, I, and I hope it was it was clear, I, you know, one of the things that we're trying to do is draw a lot of different types of groups and a lot of different types of activity to this place. So um, some of the folks we work with are people that are already doing restoration projects in there. Um, I mentioned that vegetation planting, that's actually administered by um, NRCS, uh, Natural Resources Conservation Services. And we designed it so that it would uh, supplement some terraces that, I'm sorry, some, some crevasses and sort of associated terraces that were um, actually already built by Ducks Unlimited in that area. So they've both been a part of the workshops to think through how we can develop a monitoring network for this area that's gonna feed into the next stages um, really well. Um, a, another organization has been the Miro Foundation. They've, they've, um, they were really very helpful. Blaze Peasel, who we've probably spoken to at some point, was extremely helpful in thinking through the logistics of how this type of interaction could work and it's been just extremely good to us. Um, a couple of government agencies, uh, Fish and Wildlife and USGS have been sort of interested and involved in a lot of the conversations. Um, uh, you know, there's there's sort of a long list and I don't wanna just rattle, rattle off uh, everyone who's ever been associated, but it's a really broad group of, of state and federal agencies um, academic research scientists um, from in-state, so Tulane and, and, and UNO uh, have both been involved. And also we've been doing a really good job of attracting out-of-state researchers to, to work in this area. This is a really unique opportunity to sort of co-develop um, work. So MIT and Caltech have both been um, involved in this. And, uh, 
and also universities, uh, not universities, but uh, uh, community and technical colleges. Uh, one thing we're trying to do is build this up as a something of a training ground where students can come and it's very valuable for them if they're doing, let's say, a, a surveying course to monitor an area like this that is changing um, very quickly. And so we think there's a lot of value in partnering with with those types of uh, educational organizations to 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 develop into their into their coursework. Um, and, and you know, like I said, there's a bunch of other organizations that are involved, and it, it's just you know, it's 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 intended to nucleate that type of activity. It's great, Chris, to see that kind of um, access and kind of um, empowerment of collaboration on a place that is so exciting and where there's so much change happening and where there's so much to learn and, and kind of inform coastal efforts here in Louisiana, but then around the country. I mean, you mentioned MIT and Caltech. I mean, I'm sure those researchers are looking at it um, from a perspective of where what they can take and apply more broadly. And, and then, you know, of course, we're always interested in the, the lessons that can be learned um, to inform Louisiana's efforts on restoration. So tell us a little bit, I mean, in addition to some of these larger institutions and, and agencies and organizations, you all are also involving the next generation of coastal leaders. You're involving high school students. So tell us a little bit about the high school design competition and, and how, um, you know, students at that level are going to get involved. I'm sure you're very passionate about it as a former educator as well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and, and all of that is, is, is very true. It's, it's something that I, I was really excited to have the opportunity to do and a little bit of perspective from doing this type of work um, myself in the, in the <laughs> it's, it's actually fairly distant past almost 15 years ago at this point. But um, I, so uh, one of the things that the, the, the Lamar Family Foundation funded um, in association with everything I talked about earlier is a student design competition where students from, from communities in Louisiana would be able to visit this area see the restoration activity that is actually on the ground. So that's the, the crevasses that Ducks has built and the, the um, plantings that we're going to be doing, or NRCS is really going to be doing in, um, in August, so next month. So actually get their feet on the ground, see these, these restoration projects, incorporate that in with their lessons, because they all have environmental science lessons that cover these sorts of things in their curriculum. But then the, the, the real interesting step is once they think about, okay, how can you improve upon this landscape? How can you manipulate the flow patterns to create some scenario that you think is gonna be more beneficial? The next step is for them to design something in their courses using their creativity and imagination, and also stream tables that will bring to them and let them manipulate in their in their classes. And that design competition is a way of bringing sort of just imaginative creativity, I suppose, to the to the problem. And having that in a in a school setting, I, I mean, it serves two goals. One, it's a really great educational research um, activity because a lot of these students. You know, you hear about these types of areas in your classes, but there's relatively limited opportunity to actually visit them. And the idea that students can actually be involved in designing a, a solution or designing a project is really, really quite novel. So we're excited from it from that standpoint. But it's also really helped us think through what we want out of this thing that we're calling the Bay Denise Living Lab, right? So 
getting researchers on the ground talking to practitioners is great and sort of getting a little bit of monitoring effort and and and, and coordinated effort out there is also great but the thing we really want at the heart of it is some some just imaginative creativity about how you can interact with these landscapes and what you can do to improve them and how you can use um, you know your 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 brain to to optimize them for the goals that we uh, that we that we have and having a student design competition where the students are free to explore really kind of out there ideas is a really great way of doing that it's a really great way of injecting that creativity into the into the process I love that and you know as someone who grew up and went to school in New Orleans I actually grew up in Plaquemines Parish I mean. I never had the opportunity to really, I mean, I got out in the marshes, right? And got out in the wetlands, but it usually was around fishing, but um, to learn from them, right? And to have that experience in high school and to understand that, hey, I could potentially have a career, you know, doing this type of work and helping areas like Louisiana, but elsewhere. I mean, that must be so valuable for those students. So why do you think it's important that, you know, we engage that next generation of coastal scientists, coastal leaders, coastal planners, engineers, et cetera, coastal communicators, um, and the, and the work that's happening right now across, um, our, our state, but also in coastal regions around the country. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, it, that kind of thing is, is always important. Um, uh, you know, just speaking about Louisiana in particular, it's, it's, we hear so much about, about, these types of areas um, on the news and and about how important they are. And so it's just valuable in its own right to get students out there and let them see it. And the thing that we're really trying to push in this competition is not just getting them out there and seeing it, but actually the notion that they can interact with this place and improve this place in some way, right? So right now the students are going to be designing things that are going to be in sync with the the activity that's already there. Hopefully, you know, there's a chance we might be able to get some of those student projects out there. And if you can imagine, you know, 10 years from now, some student who is, is in college or sort of towards the end of it has had this experience where they've been able to actually visit a landscape, uh, you know, it's sort of a deltaic marsh landscape in a field trip, but also say, look, I actually designed this thing that we put out there. That's a huge step towards just empowering them to to say you know what we we can actually have some influence over this place it's not just something i i I read about in the news and that's you know the whole ethos of this living lab is to actually be able to create scenarios where you can sort of you know twist knobs and and pull the levers and really uh figure out what the best way of working with these spaces are and having that start as as children is, is i think really important it's a pretty cool thing to put on your resume or college application. I helped design a coastal restoration project for Louisiana. Um, so very cool and, and, you know, so great to hear that you all are doing that important work of education and engagement. So let's talk a little bit. I mean, this is all fascinating, but you also do work outside of um, the Living Lab. So tell us about some of the other big projects you've worked on. Uh, you've been a part of the Mid-Barataria engineering and modeling for that, that project. Um, what else, uh, you know, keeps you busy over at the Water Institute? Yeah, I, so, um, well, <laughs> I mean, we do, like I said, we do a lot of different things and wear a lot of different hats. Um, I, uh, I have worked on some mid barataria projects. Um, that was some time ago when we were doing uh, modeling work to support 
uh, sort of questions about the, the longevity of, of how some large diversions would be um, and how long they would be, be functional in the landscape. Uh, I also do, so I actually recently got back from a trip to the, to the Netherlands um, that we ran with the University of New Orleans. And the, the trip there was an educational um, uh, excursion with um, PhD students from throughout the United States. And they went there to sort of do a number of different things that were all involved in uh, creating interactions with Dutch water resources management um, practice and, and professionals. And so we, we had a, a, some trainings that were involved with Del Paris, which is, uh, uh, which you might know, they're a, a, a Dutch um, research institute, very much like the Water Institute. Um, we, we set up some training programs with them and also went around the sort of coastal area looking at projects and looking at just how the Dutch water management, coastal restoration management world works. And it, that was, you know, that's a really interesting thing to do because it, you, you just get an extra perspective by looking at how, um, you know, how, how other places do that kind of thing. And what we would love to do, and, and we haven't quite figured out how to do this, but we'd love to have a, a sort of mutual exchange there where we're then bringing folks from other countries to see how this works in the United States and Louisiana in particular, because I, there's there's just a lot to learn about the different approaches and the different problems and the different ways that the stakeholders communicate with one another. Very cool. And that knowledge sharing, I mean, I know there's been a long connection between the Netherlands and Louisiana and, and that knowledge sharing across the, the two regions and others is so important. So great to see that you're facilitating that ongoing relationship. So tell us where can folks go to learn more about the Living Lab, um, the Water Institute and some of the other work that you're doing? Yeah, so, um, I mean, we have a website. It's uh, thewaterinstitute.org. That's all one word. Um, and within there, you're, there are um, uh, project pages. I think it's under uh, our work on the menu. There's one in there for the, the Bay Denise Living Lab. Um, there's another for uh, a program that I didn't get too much time to talk about um, called the, the Lowermost Mississippi River Management Program. Which is Yeah, there. tell us a little bit about that program. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. Um, so it... it it's a LMRMP. It's a it's a it's a large program. It's a very large program with a lot of different facets. Um, but at its core, it's an effort to develop uh, sort of a, a more holistic management strategy for the Mississippi River than probably currently exists. Um, I think folks who have you know worked with the river for a long time understand that the 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 way that it's managed is usually for three goals. Um, right? One of them is, of course, navigation. Uh, another is, is flood control, and another is environmental restoration. And the the agencies that are responsible for each of those have, uh, you know, we could work towards making those three goals uh, a little bit more unified um, at the agency level. And part of the the goal of the LMRMP program is to create tools that facilitate those types of interaction between those three tracks. Um, so in a lot of ways, for those of your listeners who are familiar with the Mississippi River Hydro Study, LMRMP is, is 
something of a of a of a continuation on that project. Um, like I said, there's a, there's a lot of work within the LMRMP umbrella. Um, I've worked on two components of it. One is uh, a, a dredging an assessment of uh, dredging activity uh, in the river. So this is dredging for navigation. And actually, that was I, for me, you know, as someone who studied the river for a long time, that was extremely interesting because we actually. You know, a lot of the the work on river sedimentation and river dynamics is really more about the natural processes. And I, I think that uh, for many years I had given uh, not as much attention to the amount of work that's done by dredging in the river, which turns out, you know, if we we, we did this analysis and, and the, the amount of sediment that's mobilized by dredges in this reach that we call the crossings, uh, right? So that's that's the... The, the reach, uh, you know, between New Orleans and, and a little bit north of Baton Rouge, um, the amount of, of sediment that's mobilized by dredging is about equivalent to the entire suspended sediment in the river. So it, it's, it's not just a small amount of work that's being done by the dredges. It's a really major component of the sediment budget. For someone who, like me, has thought about the sediment budget of the river for quite some time, that's a really interesting, uh, I don't know, observation. And then we also have a an environmental scenarios modeling effort there, um, where we have a, a, a simplified rules based tool that routes sediment and water through the system. And what I've been doing um, as again a, you know a small part of this much larger project is to work on parameterizing some of the rules that that determine water flow from from one part of the system to the next. And the 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 real uh, important thing here is that with that framework, we can we can sort of vacuum in all types of data and analyses that have been done but haven't really been integrated with one another. So what I'm doing is trying to parameterize some of those rules using um, a lot of uh, observational data that's been collected over the years, as well as uh, modeling outputs and make them so that we have a, a sort of rules-based framework for routing flow and sediment through the lower part of the river, right? The reach I'm responsible for is essentially south of, uh, south of Belle Chase. Um, and once that's established, what we can do, and this is where it really takes, takes a, you know, a major step forward, what we can do there is, is use this simplified rules-based model to run a large number of environmental scenarios and management alternatives to come up with a real sense of where your uncertainties lie in managing the system. So it's really just a tool that we're developing to, to integrate a lot of studies that have been, uh, you know, not fully integrated over, over the years. It's, 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 it's becoming quite interesting. Just a just a small little program, right? Nothing yeah, too yeah, big, yeah, not exploring yeah, any yeah. major topics, but all very fascinating. I mean, I know certainly in years of high rivers and and with um, you know opening of Bonacary, there's a lot of conversation about you know the river and its management in terms of flood protection and navigation and how can you put ecosystem restoration on equal footing as, as some of the other goals of of the river management. So very important to see that. And then yeah, in terms of dredged uh, material in the river, I, I wonder is some of the goal there to understand maybe how the core can better use that material beneficially for, you know, restoration projects, or I know they do that in some places, but, um, you know, I'm not sure in terms of all the sediment that's being dredged, where that's put, and if it is used beneficially. Yeah, I, that, that certainly is, a, you know, part of the project is to, to, to 
to come up with um, ideas and also identify constraints in how we use the sediment budget that's available. And so incorporating dredging into that understanding is a, is a really important part of the, part of the process. Um, and so, you know, ideally we would have a, a large number of different alternatives, right? So places where you can put that sediment or ways that you can use it that we would build into this model to, 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 um, to assess which of them might work under different environmental scenarios and, you know, what trade-offs you have to make. Cause I, you know, one of the things that we, this is sort of me stepping out of my LMRMP discussion here, but one of the things that we always have to think about is, you know, we're relatively um, limited in what we're going to be able to accomplish, or there are limits in what we're going to be able to accomplish. And these tools that I'm describing here often allow us to make those trade-offs and make those choices uh, intelligently. So like the, you know, the, the Louisiana is going to be, yeah, 50 years from now, Louisiana is going to be smaller than what it is now, right? There's really no way of getting around that. But we've got a lot of tools that we can use to choose where the losses happen and what areas we are able to preserve and to what extent. And being able to have a framework for making those choices is extremely important. Yeah, certainly is. And, you know, would definitely love to have you back on at any point um, to, to talk about that work as it progresses. I'm really glad that we were able to connect with you, learn more about your work um, and, and the living lab um, at Bay Denise. So thank you so much for being on, Chris, and, and please do come back. But before I let you go, um, we have a Delta Dispatches tradition. We each ask our guests a fun question. So um, I guess in the spirit of being out in a living lab and, you know, on Louisiana's coast, um, I imagine you get out a lot. You get to see a lot of the, the flora and fauna of, of coastal Louisiana. So what is your favorite coastal critter that when you're out <laughs> and about and you see it and you're just like, oh, that's so awesome. That, that makes oh, me so funny. excited. Yeah. Okay. Um, favorite coastal critter. Um, all right. So I, I, I'm going to default to birds on this one. I'm, I'm sort of a, a bird watcher since a very young age. And um, uh, Louisiana is a pretty good place for that, um, to be honest. I'll, um, uh, all right, favorite coastal critter, I'm gonna tie into one of my favorite uh, natural experiences in Louisiana was witnessing a fallout of migratory birds on Grand Isle one year. Um, and for you know those of you who, uh, know what that is it's it's uh, or for those of you who don't know what it is it's uh, you know all of the 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 migrants that leave north america for the winter then come back in the spring and so when spring migration really kicks up in uh, i think the the time i am thinking of in particular was in late april which is about prime time all of the birds and you know it's many many millions of them are flying north over the gulf of mexico and when they see land, especially if there's inclement weather ahead of them, they simply fall out. They just drop down and start eating because they've been flying for, for several days and they're exhausted and hungry. And so for someone who spends a lot of time, uh, you know, trying to, to find these small little birds and listen to them and see them, to see them just, you know, just really extremely concentrated and these brilliantly colored birds in their spring plumage uh, all ready to go just just right around you in, in numbers you've never seen before it's pretty fantastic so i'm gonna identify my favorite louisiana coastal critter as spring 
neotropical migrant birds. That, that's a great answer. I'm just going to point out to our listeners um, and to others that um, Chris brought up birds on the show first. I did not. Simone likes to give me a hard time and say that I only like to talk about birds on this show, but um, that was an open-ended question. So that's a good answer. And, and we've certainly had, you know, Dr. Eric Johnson with Audubon and others on who um, have been part of the Grand Isle Migratory Bird Festival and have talked about that experience of, of you know, the birds that do cross the Gulf of Mexico and what, what it's like when they kind of fall out um, on Grand Isle, that first piece of land and how vital those, those, that, that land, right. The barrier islands are for, for those birds as they're returning. So very good answer. Well, thank you so much, Chris, um, for being on Christopher Esposito, water research research scientist with the water Institute of the Gulf. And like I said, please do come back at any point. Um, we'd love to stay on top of the work you're doing and keep our listeners informed. Wonderful. Thank you. I'd, I'd be happy to. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Well, I'm going to go ahead and give the coastal stat of the week. Um, there is a new paper out in Science Advances called Migration and Transformation of Coastal Wetlands in Response to Rising Seas. Um, it was recently covered by Mark Schlefstein in the New Orleans Advocate Times-Picayune. And in the article, um, the, one of the lead researchers is quoted as saying, Louisiana is the state with the highest potential for wetland loss, the highest potential for wetland migration, and the highest potential for ecological loss and transformation due to migrating wetlands. Um, and that is from Michael Osland, who is a research ecologist at the USGS Wetlands and Aquatic Research Center in Lafayette and lead author of the study published last week in the journal Science Advances. Um, we have to give a shout out of the week. There are two um, members of our Restore the Mississippi River Delta family who were recently recognized by Gambit for their um, being a part of their 40 under 40 young leaders across our region. Um, so huge congratulations to Katie Gruz Daniel at Environmental Defense Fund and Owen Weller from Pontchartrain Conservancy. Um, this should come as no surprise to those who have worked with them. Um, but Again, well-deserved and congratulations. And then lastly, our Coastal Voice of the Week comes from Shannon in Beerus, Louisiana. And Shannon says, I support the coast because living in Plaquemines Parish, there are only a few miles of land between where I live and the river and the Gulf Levee. I have neighbors and friends who lose every who lose land every year due to the diminishing coast. The environment and landscape and its changes very directly affect the lives of the people living in this parish. Um, and that is from Shannon and Buras. and Shannon cannot agree more. Thank you for sharing that perspective and reminding us about the urgency of the work that we're doing. Um, thank you again to Chris and to all of our listeners. Um, and that's it for today's show, but we will be back soon with more Delta Dispatches. And until then, we will see y'all later, Alex.